Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode just for patrons, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. If you haven't joined the Discord yet, now is a great time to do it because we are starting a new reading series in our Death Panel reading group called Anti-Psychiatry, Anti-Capital, and our first meeting is at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, April 17th um, in the Discord server, and you do not have to be a patron to participate or just listen in. A link to join is in the episode description, so come join us. And if you'd like to help the show out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and request it at your local library, or follow us at DeathPanel underscore. So today's episode is going to be another installment in our Death Panel History series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last week, Thursday, April 5th, 2022, was the 45th anniversary of one of the most well-known early disability civil rights actions in American history. On April 5th, 1977, disabled people led simultaneous sit-ins at 11 housing, education, and welfare offices across the United States. Um, And this is known as the 504 sit-in. And the idea was to attempt to pressure the Carter administration to implement one small section of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, which was originally passed under Nixon, but had been held up and delayed over concerns about overall costs to the quote-unquote taxpayer. So today we're going to talk about 504 itself, not just the sit-in, but why the sit-in happened, what it accomplished, and the regulatory dynamics and paranoias which led to the protest movement in the first place. Because the question really is, why did a random sentence at the end of a standard reauthorization become a highly controversial (laughs) national issue? So just to sort of set us up, on the morning of April 5th, 1977, hundreds of disabled people entered the offices of the U.S. Department of Housing, Education and Welfare in cities across the United States, demanding that the agency implement one line in the law um, called Section 504. Accounts vary as to the total number of protests that occurred simultaneously, but based on my own research, I would put it at 11 of them. And out of these 11 actions taking place in San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Boston, Seattle, New York, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Chicago, Dallas, Denver, and Los Angeles, only one of those would last past the first week, thanks in no small part to the support of the Oakland Black Panther Party, who provided crucial support to the San Francisco sit-in, allowing it to sustain for weeks. So if you look at the average account of the story, right, if you just sort of look up like What's the 504 sit-in? Which I have to say, I didn't even, I didn't even, I hadn't even heard that uh, because like, and and I you know, would have thought maybe in like thinking about the history of social movements, I would have heard about like a month long sit-in in like a federal office building where like the federal government like was like. Like an occupation of a hue building. Yeah, yeah. Where the federal government was like doing everything possible to like get these people out. And, you know, it's just, it's a wild story which I've never heard at all. But what's the sort of like conventional account? So the sort of short version of the story is that in 1973, a law called the Rehabilitation Act was uh, reauthorized. And in that act, someone had put in one sentence called Section 504 at the very end, which was a civil rights provision for people with disabilities. Now, we'll get into this a little bit later, but no one actually knows how that got in there and what the intent was. But ultimately, what happens is this law ends up sitting there for four years. And after four years, disabled people who have been organizing around this at that point um, 
declare that they have a deadline and they want Hugh to implement the law by April 4th, 1977. And when they don't, on April 5th, 1977, they occupy the Hugh office building um, with the San Francisco occupation lasting about a month. And the story goes that kind of they were successful. And then this becomes the sort of beginning of the disability civil rights movement. And this is the kind of like genesis moment. And it's kind of talked about, you know, romantically as this real origin point of the kind of model of advocacy that you see becoming um, dominant throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And this is really kind of laying the template for the work that would go into the ADA. And many disability rights activists at the time, um, you know, when they were working on passing the ADA, they said that this was explicitly a project of expanding the promise of Section 504. So it's a really important sort of moment in disability history, but most people know of it just through this protest action, and they don't know of the bigger backstory and the sort of more complicated and very interesting story, not just behind the sit-in, but behind the policy itself, which is actually a really important story with a lot of angles that are rarely mentioned even in disability studies. Right. I mean, for instance, I think uh, I think this has changed more recently, but I think in a lot of kind of popular accounts, like if you're going to re- open, I don't know, like a high school textbook or something about this and see like a little blurb, you know, they do like a paragraph or something about some major event. I, I think in like in that kind of general sanitized history, there's no mention of like the fact that one of the reasons that of all of the different occupations that were happening at the time, that the reason that, um, as you mentioned in your sort of set up that the San Francisco one was able to go was like in large part because of the involvement of the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. uh, right, who did a lot of work to like support the to feed and yeah, help actually sustain it, you know, that like that for a long time was sort of just basically ignored mm-hmm. in the history written out explicitly written out of the record in many instances as those people ju- just kind of like showed up to this office building and they were it wasn't contested like you know it was an occupation of a federal building but it wasn't somehow it was like mer- magically miraculously it wasn't contestational or something it was just like they Don't were worry, peacefully allowed to sit people there weren't and mean it was nice everybody liked it that's right. like the classic sanitized social <laughs> movement history exactly you know it goes law passes government stalls Activists through direct action force the federal government to implement law. Everybody lives happily ever after. Right. The arc of history got bent. (laughs) And, um, you know, this. But of course, you know, this is death panel. So longtime listeners will know that I'm about to say, well, the truth is actually much more complicated than that. And. This more complicated story happens to also be a particular area of research interest of mine. And, you know, because the writing I have on this is not yet published, I'm glad to be able to sort of walk you all through this other history of Section 504. Mm -hmm. But first, to you know, to sort of understand why the 504 protest happened or even what it was, it's really important to understand what Section 504 was and the Rehabilitation Act itself. Right. I think what I'm really excited about getting into in this story, because there are, you know, as we mentioned, there is a lot of focus on the occupation. There is a lot of uh, even, you know, as we mentioned, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be revised about the histories of that occupation that is uh, either written out of the record, but also 
to understand what Section 504 was and how it got implemented, it gets into this whole sort of uh, conversation about first what the forces were that determined this being sort of written into the law in the first place, how that how that happened. But then also how immediately this fell into like what at the time was sort of the costs versus benefits discussion, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, in this case, yeah. very literally a cost benefit discussion of is the cost of guaranteeing of having a law on the books saying that disabled people have civil rights are those costs worth it to the government is it too um, expensive yeah yeah and these are literally the conversations Should that happen we care so, about their lives and how much right so i think getting into that I, i'm i'm very excited to uh to hear especially your take on the, this story b because i think that this yeah again this is this like phenomenal case study Really, mm-hmm. which is a really under-discussed component of of Section five hundred four as a regulation. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I also think this is interesting: is that the the real thing that sparks the this demonstration is the like the holdup of the regulation, and it's happening at a time before the sort of like formalization of cost benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, that holdup it's so much more nakedly political uh why that's happening and it's it's i sort of as i was reading through the history i was thinking like it would be so much easier to hide the the very naked political interest behind holding up the uh, regulation today like cost benefit analysis provides this wonderful like pseudoscientific way Mm -hmm. of of like justifying this and it's interesting i just sort of like wonder counterfactually like what would this be like under a different a regime where all of that politics is sort of hidden. And uh, I don't know, we'll, 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 I guess, get into like the way that people justified holding this thing up. It's really interesting. Yeah, because I think it's also this is the kind of thing where it's one of those stories that um, when you start to look at the picture, not just of the sort of narrative of like how the law is um, sort of passed and then enters into public life, but just the real narrative of like the nuts and bolts of implementing laws once they're passed. You know, most of the time, I think when people think of advocacy and policy victories, you think of moments of protest or the moments of drafting, being at those tables, being able to get, you know, legislation drafted in the first place. But, you know, all of those moments up until the point of something being signed, for example, by the president and then sort of sent to an agency to then um, get implemented and how it gets implemented are just one tiny part of, you know, how politics are made. Right. You know, the 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 fact of the matter is, is that equally important to the political process of sort of getting the bill onto the desk, whether it's going to be vetoed or not, is if the bill is signed, what happens when agencies get it, right? What happens when agencies have to then interpret what they are given, interpret these laws and actually decide how to put those into practice? And surprise, surprise, right? When you look into the bigger uh, history of what happened, you know, with Section 504, you immediately get into this incredibly important conversation about cost-benefit analysis, about austerity, about waste, fraud, and abuse, and really about sort of the value of what the value of making the United States accessible actually was. And, you know, while many are unaware of this early direct action, even fewer people know this backstory of why Section 504 took so long to implement and how it was essentially tossed from one Hugh director to the next, like a fucking 
hot potato over three presidencies, three presidential right. administrations before the protests even happened. Right. right. And yet stranger definitively to this day, as I mentioned, no one knows who is responsible for the language in the bill <laughs> that set this whole thing in motion. No one has taken credit for it. Section 504 is a single sentence never discussed in committee or on the floor for debate before the bill was passed. A single sentence, no legislative history to back it up. And the sort of strange truth about Section 504, which might be the sort of largest question and like disability history and American disability history is that really, you know, if people had known what Section 504 would do, would it have actually gotten passed? Would it have made it? And I I don't think that if people sort of realized as this process was happening, leading up until the point where it goes and starts hitting the agency, I think if people realized, um, you know, it's the kind of thing that never would have seen the light of day, which is, you know, I think an interesting angle to think <laughs> about it. So what's you know what's important to understand basically uh, is that before the mid twentieth century, much of the United States was highly inaccessible. Disabled people often could not go to college. You basically, if you were lucky enough to get a high school education um, as a disabled person, that was a tremendous achievement. There were many aspects of society that were structurally and uh, institutionally much more inaccessible. Many disabled people lived in institutions or asylums. Very few people lived in the community. And this is the beginning. You know, the the 1960s is the beginning of what's called the independent living movement, um, who are really sort of the first advocates for the social model of disability in the United States. And what they're doing is rejecting a sort of purely medicalized frame for understanding disability. That disability is not just a personal problem of individuals who are in need of treatment, therapy, or cure, but a society-level problem of exclusion, segregation, and stigmatization that exists not just at the individual level, but also at the level of systems, institutions, laws, and civil rights. And can we pause for a second on that? Because like up until the you know, latter part of the 20th century, the main way that governments thought about disability policy was like, "Mm, these people are the problem themselves. It's not like that we have a society that was, you know, built in a way that just emphasizes like economic production and just reframing and saying, no, 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 the problem is that system or that society itself. Like that is a tremendous, it's like worth thinking about how that's done because it's precisely that kind of transformation that's like really missing even more broadly today rhetorically it's just like i found that aspect of the history itself even before you get to like the demonstrations or anything like that itself is like fascinating to me it's it's really important and interesting because it's a major shift in the way that people think about disability um writ large but it is also important to note that we shouldn't necessarily be like super um standing these early disability activists because a a lot of the ideology that underlies this early shift to the um, social model of disability lies on a couple of things like the independent living movement drew heavily on um, language of civil rights, but also on consumerism, Mm self-help and demedicalization and the sort of idea that, you know, disability doesn't exist within the physical body and that chronically ill people are sort of excluded was part of the early social model theory. It was a rejection of saying we're not sick. So, you know, it's like in this sort of moment of reframe, right, you have these two opposing and highly, highly opposed views of disability, one that sees everything through a medicalized lens and one that fully rejects a medicalized lens. And it's 
important to sort of remember that, for example, before this moment, most bills, if they're dealing with disability, they're going to say veterans or rehabilitation right. in it. And mm, okay, yeah, that's right. And um, in 1968, something called something called the Architectural Barriers Act passes, and that's really the first social model bill that passes in the United States. And that comes, you know, that's a whole other story right, well, for another day. Because prior to that, most of the legislation in the United States regarding disability was mostly related to, as you mentioned, either institutionalizing disabled people or a actually conjoined uh, purpose with the asylum system, actually, which was, as you said, rehabilitation, which is the idea that you kind of separate disabled people from broader society, train them to do jobs, rehabilitate them in some way to do work. And that the end goal for a lot of, especially in, I think, the 19th and 20th century, Mm -hmm. right, the end goal for a lot of disability uh, welfare policy was yeah like work training programs right. was, it was normal ensuring productivity and yeah, yeah. yeah exactly it was it was a, a strategy of normalization to make the disabled person appear normal so you had you know corrective braces things to sort of orthopedic interventions right and this is like very much like until 1968 this is all disability policy does like it talks about allocating resources for surgeries and interventions and asylums and the doctors and the nurses and the staff you know and it's it's very much all sort of contained within um, that medical apparatus and starting with the independent living movement which gets started um, you know at, at UC Berkeley in the early 60s, Disability activists in the United States began to start to try and frame accessibility under the framework of social, civil, or economic rights, not under the framework of vocational rehabilitative interventions. So this is sort of um, obviously inspired by movements for racial justice and civil rights era legislation. Disability activists in the independent living movement start to try and emulate those strategies in the realm of disability-specific policy in the early 1970s towards goals of essentially undoing what they're calling at the time segregation. Um, if you are speaking as a contemporary person, do not use that to describe the non-inclusion of disabled people in society. That's not a current term. But um, as was the standard in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, every few years, Congress would redraft, update, and reauthorize something called a vocational rehabilitation bill. And in Which was the, designed to do exactly the stuff we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. It was designed to, to maintain funding for all of these programs um, that warehoused and trained and treated uh, disabled people. And in the 1972 reauthorization, a small change was made. Again, no one knows how it got in there. Um, and that's Section 504, which set into motion this whole debate. The, the language, the actual sentence is... Um, no otherwise qualified handicapped individual in the United States, as defined in Section 7, Paragraph 6, shall solely by reason of his handicap be excluded from the participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Right. And really, basically, the story goes that in the summer of 1972, when this is being drafted, this is a moment in Congress when civil rights had high visibility. Everyone had an opinion on it. And at the time, they were fiercely debating creating an agency within the federal government to enforce all of the various nebulous civil rights statutes that had been passed over the last like decade or so. Many disability scholars uh, who have looked into this sort of say that the general vibe in Washington at the time 
which dominated the debate over centralized versus decentralized approaches to civil rights programs is probably actually what informed this and that this was kind of like a mm. courtesy that they that staffers included because they that was sort of in vogue at the time. Um, it was a gesture that was something to sort of do that in the same way as for the Civil Rights Act. If you are if the mechanism to enforce, for instance, like uh, desegregation of public schools and, and other places is essentially withholding government funding. Yeah. And right. so that's essentially what 504 threatens is that if you receive federal funding, you must not uh, discriminate against people with disabilities. And that includes, um, well, it doesn't say what it includes, actually. It's just that sentence that later becomes right. the problem. Right, and then who right? it includes Which, becomes contestational <laughs> right, later. Right, yeah. exactly. Well, right, because ostensibly it could be expansive. It could be any federal dollars, which at the time there had just been an explosion in like federal dollars uh, to state and local governments, all of this construction, um, a lot of highways, right? It's it's like pretty, it's pretty expansive, like what that could have meant. Right. And the most definitive account of sort of who was responsible for Section 504 comes from sociologist Richard Scotch. Um, he writes, the idea for including an anti-discrimination prohibition in the Rehabilitation Act occurred toward the end of a meeting in late August 1972 to discuss revisions to the marked up bill. Participants in the meeting included John Steinberg, Michael Francis, Nick Edis, Lisa Walker, Michael Burns, Roy Millenstein, and Robert Humphreys. Staff members were concerned that when disabled individuals completed their training in the vocational rehabilitation system and were ready to enter the workplace, many employers appeared to be reluctant to hire them. Staff members felt that the final goal of the vocational rehabilitation program, getting disabled people into the mainstream of society via work, of course, was being blocked by negative attitudes and discrimination on the part of employers and others, which if you think about this framework, right, it sounds a lot like the ADA, doesn't it? And, you know, very much um, the idea, I think, was sort of just to include it as a way to try and, you know, give people, give disabled people possibly like leverage to um, argue that they're uh, facing employment discrimination and that, you know, textually, oh, we can throw in there that employment discrimination against disabled people is illegal, Right. And right. I, I think if you think about that logic and you think about it from, you know, the kind of discussions that are happening among congressional staffers at the time, they're working on Title IX um, as part of the 1972 Education Act. And um, Title IX also features this language. And it turns out that Roy Millenson, who was in that meeting, who worked for Senator Jacob Javits, who was like a leader on Title IX, um, he goes, well, let me just like go and grab Title IX from my office and we'll just take the sentence. So apparently that's sort of um, how it gets in there. And as Scotch writes, at the time of its inclusion and throughout the consideration of the Rehabilitation Act by Congress and the president, neither members of Congress nor those concerned with disability <laughs> issues took note of the section. Right. Scotch says it might be thought that such a far reaching measure would have involved substantial debate on its merits and that Congress would carefully indicate its intentions when considering the legislation However, there is little in the record to suggest what, if anything, members of Congress had in mind when Section 504 was enacted. When a bill is considered in Congress, both the committees that prepare it and the conference committee that reconciles the House and Senate versions issue reports. These reports provide an opportunity to comment on the statutory language and provide background information referred to as, quote, legislative history. The legislative history of the Rehabilitation Act 
contains only passing references to Section 504, stating simply that the section prohibits discrimination without without providing any rationale or predicting any impact. The committee reports may also contain projections on the cost for each of the statutory provisions. Unlike most of the other parts of the Rehabilitation Act, no public expenditures were projected for Section 504. Legislative history also consists of the discussion of a bill during its consideration on the House and Senate floors, which is published in the congressional record. No references were made to the potential significance <laughs> of Section 504 on the floor so of either they just house. just didn't talk about it at all. In short, there was nothing to indicate and what yeah, Congress like- had intended when it had passed Section 504. So... I love this, especially in context with what Phil was saying uh, earlier about how in under a very different regime, you could imagine this going very differently CBO because score, the CBO score, you know, I, I would hope like in some, in some ways this like gives me hope that potentially something like that, this could still, uh, you know, happen today. I, I feel like I doubt it, but it seems like just the power of having you know, a couple of staffers in a room say like, let's see if we can get this in there and then just no one noticing or commenting on it. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, really like uh, shape, like shaping so much of the um, really shaping so much of policy that came afterward. Absolutely. I mean, it turns out that the Rehabilitation Act of 73 was already controversial. Can we pass Medicare for all like this? <laughs> I know, right? By yeah. a little secret line in there somewhere. So the act itself had already been controversial, right? Nixon vetoed it in 72 um, because it had added additional funding to existing vocational rehab programs and created new programs that were specifically targeted at certain disability groups. But mostly what really worried conservative politicians at the time was the change in the act that would allow disabled people with quote-unquote severe disabilities to participate in rehabilitation and education programs that they were previously barred from for being categorically, quote, too disabled. So um, Too disabled to be rehabilitated? Too disabled to be rehabilitated or educated, um, called formerly uh, human waste by the rehabilitation movement uh, in the 1800s. Right. So the reauthorization bill, right, it was controversial, but nobody knew about Section 504, and Section 504 was not why it was initially controversial and first vetoed by Nixon. But after being basically reintroduced for the third time in Congress in May of 1973, um, the Rehabilitation Act makes it to Nixon's desk again, President Nixon signs it on September 26th, 1973, with Section 504 in it. And, you know, of course, most members of Congress appear to have been unaware that this was in there um, or even thought about it at all. At best, it was maybe thought of as a sort of platitude, as we were saying, you know, that people, staffers were like, oh, well, this relates to employment. Um, This bill relates to employment of disabled people. We should include a provision against employment discrimination, right? So, you know, it's not to say that Section 504 is like a fluke or an accident, right? But there's no intent there on the record. And so after the Rehabilitation Act is signed in late September 1973, it gets passed on through the executive branch so that they can decide sort of where it goes. And um, it ends up where the prior Rehabilitation Acts ended up, which is in the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, who was responsible for doing basically what Congress failed to do, which was include their preference defining what Section 504 meant, was meant to do and how it was meant to be done. So... I mean, Phil, maybe you could um, please feel free to jump in on this. But uh, once something like the Rehabilitation Act is signed by a president, um, 
it goes through the sort of normal process, right, where it, it gets assigned to a department. And yeah. most bills have language in them that says this is a law and this is how the law should work. Correct. Uh, it varies, right? I mean, one of the ways that you get a coalition together is you make the law vague mm-hmm. and then you say the agency uh, has to fill in the details, right? All of that is like the the politics of bureaucratic structure uh, that, that, you know, is often required in like getting a bill passed. Like one example is like the as a sop to um, like opponents of o- the OSHA Act. Mm. Um, they required all of this, all these sort of studies to be done, you know, beforehand, like to sort of delay things. Right. So like you can like all of the, the details that won't appear immediately interesting to you when you like look at a piece of legislation, they're really the sort of the, the politics that like produces the act. So like when something's super vague, it either means that maybe people didn't know that it was in there, uh, or that it's the product of some implicit or explicit political compromise. But in any case, it's the agency uh, that has to interpret it and it's interpreting it in the light of the rulemaking process, which gives a period of time uh, for the agency to publish like a proposed rule. And then uh, people can comment on the rule. Often those comments come from, pretty well organized uh, business interests. There's sort of a bias, tends to be a bias in those comments towards those interests. And then agencies um, essentially are required to uh, take those comments into consideration and then issue a final rule that takes them into consideration. And then the the most important thing is that, that you can take the agency to court uh, if it didn't make the rule correctly, if it didn't follow the process, uh, or if it like blatantly violated uh, the law for most in most cases. Right. And I mean, the the agencies, as I understand it, have a lot of discretion, but they're supposed to, I guess, be making their decisions within the sort of intent and spirit of the law. Right. Yeah. And it's and again, like if the law is really vague, right. um, then there's a lot of variation. And this is why I think the the thing that you said earlier, B, is very important, which is the idea that like the political process ends after a piece of legislation passes uh, is is very wrong, especially when laws are vague. Right. Uh, because the fight really becomes defining what it's going to mean for people to implement it. And and the thing about that process is it can be very technical. Um, it can be very exclusive, mm-hmm. right, uh, mm-hmm. to a, a relatively small number of regulated parties. And I think when you look at what happens after this particular piece of regulation yeah. is, is then sort of drafted, you know, it's, it's like, um, colleges and universities are, are completely up in arms. They're like, mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to do our jobs anymore. Like God forbid, like we, you know, allow people <laughs> with disabilities to like go to college, like go to college. Yeah. Right. And you're um, not exaggerating. That's basically what they say in their statements about this. Oh, they're, they're but- freaked out. They're, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're, 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 they are, they are, out out of control. But before, I mean, before before we get ahead of ourselves, though, I want to uh, I want to say something. Actually, part of this, I think, very illustrative, actually, of exactly what the two of you are saying, but more specific to um, uh, ba- you know, back to the specifics about five hundred four, is that immediately after five hundred four is passed, uh, or sorry, I mean, immediately after you know this is this is signed with five hundred four in it, rather, uh, there is a question because it is vague, as we've been talking about. There's a question of even what agency is responsible 
for dealing with this and implementing this and it ultimately yeah, it's that vague right it's it's that vague that, that even it's that unclear whether vague. it's like there's this discussion like is it part of the uh rehabilitative service administration which was a thing at the time is it mm-hmm. part of uh, is it more broadly part of Hugh? Is it more broadly part of uh, where it, well, where it ultimately ends up for at least the beginning is in the Office of Civil Rights. Mm-hmm. And what's very interesting there in itself is that, so it becomes up to the Office of Civil Rights to draft the uh, regulations for what um, Section 504 would entail when implemented. And they immediately run to this interesting hitch which is that every agency at the time i actually don't know it might still be very similar uh today but every agency at the time has its own or multiple definitions of disabled Mm -hmm. multiple definitions of what it means to be a disabled person and uh in the act the one one thing that wasn't vague Mm -hmm. was that ultimately uh the office that was going to manage this the office of civil rights they should use the definition under the rehabilitation act itself uh, which is, I'm going to read the exact language, uh, which is, again, not language that should be used anymore. Quote, the term handicapped individual means any individual who A, has a physical or mental disability for which such individual constitutes or results in a substantial handicap to employment and B, can reasonably be expected to benefit in terms of employability from vocational rehabilitation services uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so this basically, as you can see, presented a bit of a problem because the Rehabilitation Act, right, as I had said, this is mostly used to um, sort disabled people. These programs are used to sort disabled people into those who can be rehabilitated and those who cannot. People who can be rehabilitated got access to certain services and people who could not got access to um Carceral options only, pretty much. It was carceral across the board, actually, frankly. Right. Um, But got access to much less. So obviously, the Office of Civil Rights uh, sees an immediate problem here, which is if we, the bill says, use, um, you know, literally the one thing that Section 504 is clear about, right? Because there's no legislative history, there's no elaboration in the in the text itself. But it does say, according to this definition that's in this act, right? That Ernie just read. Those people deserve civil rights, essentially, right? Um, here's the here's the problem, right? So the the Office of Civil Rights is like we can't do a civil rights provision that is this restrictive. You know, we can't basically say that we're only doing civil rights for some disabled people and not for others. This isn't an appropriate definition to use. We need to include. Um, more people and we need to include people who can't work people, for instance you know, because that's a whole big category a huge of disabled category, people yeah. right like we can't just give civil rights to only disabled people who can work like that would be a big fuck up right um you know at at the time obviously i think when the when 504 was included right obviously no one was really thinking about it but they said oh we've got that definition of disability in you know in section 7 so we'll just reference that you know and the you know the problem is that Essentially, by this point, uh, it's now 1974, and they've been trying to work out the definition, and um, the Office of Civil Rights wants to expand it to include all disabled people as it should. The problem is that that would mean including people who use drugs or who uh, are, quote-unquote, dependent on alcohol, people who are, quote-unquote, severely disabled, all these kind of, like, undesirable constituencies that are, um, you know, politically devalued 
And part of the problem is that because of the sort of lack of legislative history, right, there are plenty of people to be like, oh, no, it's, you know, just use any old definition of disability. But the Office of Civil Rights is really adamant that, no, we have to, like, make a new definition that includes these subaltern groups because otherwise it's really fucked up. And so what happens is they start to sort of send portions of the bill, they send them back to the the Senate and the House, and they ask for sort of technical clarification. And it goes through all these rounds of discussion. And of course, you know, this more expansive framework of disability needing to happen is a sort of immediate issue. And essentially what happens is that after about a year, um, by late November 1974, the act ends up back at Hugh with these new amendments sort of tacked onto it that are technical and clarifying amendments to sort of expand on 504. And so essentially between 1973 and 1974, still activists are not at all aware that Section 504 exists. They are not organizing on it. They are not involved in the process. They are not being asked for their opinions. They are not being necessarily thought of as stakeholders in this. They're still very much a kind of passive object um, by a lot of the people that are working on this. So that's going to change. And ultimately, the sort of real task begins when, in 1975, Hughes starts to try and concretize this broader definition of disability that would include, you know, this different working of disabled people that was much more expansive. And the other thing that's not addressed in Section 504 and not addressed in any of the amendments that they've just spent a year working on is cost. There we go. There's no discussion. Um, of cost or how it's going to be, quote unquote, paid for. And this was sort of the style at the time. They decide, you know what, fuck it. Um, We need to intentionally leave that out, though, because if we put that in, that's a sort of catch. And it's a, quote unquote, cynical obstruction to focus on costs and that any benefits would quantifiably above and beyond so obviously outweigh any potential costs that it wouldn't even merit comparing them and This is taken into account in the drafting process and sort of reflected in the language. And after several rounds back and forth, this first full draft is finally settled upon in early 1975. Can can you imagine? I know, right? Can you imagine literally anybody in the process of drafting a reg like this, like staking out that particular person? I know it's not like this is far from the end of the story. And basically it uh, it, you know, gets disrupted on a cost basis after this. But can you imagine uh, this happening today like yeah. this i mean i couldn't oh yeah i mean it's I'm, I'm imagining that really what the process would have been like okay well like how can we find some like like some logical way within the text of the statute to provide waivers to any and, any and all uh, institutions that might for some reason not be able to do this right because like the cost thing is interesting is it like okay you're going to impose this um regulation on on like say local governments and mm-hmm. remember this is the middle of the 1970s you've got fiscal crisis you've got governments like def- going into default you've got new york about to be run by like a debt junta um yeah so so like there are like real issues about like you know that the, the federal government can avoid by simply making a regulation rather than providing financing to ensure that the thing that they want to do the people who they're asking to do would actually have the money to make it happen. Um, but at the same time, it is like, it's profoundly, I mean, it's, it's profoundly interesting to see what happens when you don't have this um, 
you know, the what ultimately became the Reagan executive order in the early 1980s saying directing agencies that it doesn't matter what Congress tells you the law is right. (laughs) Congress, Congress may have commanded you to do this, but you are only allowed to, uh, you know, fulfill Congress's command. It's democratically legitimate command. If you determine that the benefits of the way that you're doing it outweigh whatever attendant calculable and far more calculable costs. I mean, so like, that's the thing that's, that's interesting is, is okay. This is going to be a very flawed rollout for a variety of reasons, but at the very least the idea is Congress has sent me like the elected Congress has sent me an unelected bureaucrat, a command My job is not to necessarily preemptively at the very least consider, oh, I, 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 gee, I hope that the benefits outweigh the cost. Now that emerges through the political process anyway, but it's, it's a very, you can imagine that like, even just in the mind of somebody who's doing this, that's going to read very, very differently today when there is this other thing that's just like, oh yeah, by the way. This this here's here's a constraint on democracy. And you got to take that into consideration, too. <laughs> well, and the you know, here's the really interesting thing, right? Because this is 1975 and what happens in 1975. But a lot of regime change at Hugh. And um, in early summer of 1975, the Hugh secretary changes. And it's a it's a guy named F. David Matthews who's brought in who surprise, surprise. Dave guess- Matthews. <laughs> Yeah, surprise, surprise. Guess what Dave Matthews' um, job was right prior to becoming Hugh Secretary? Oh, I didn't know this. What was it? Being under the table and dreaming? I don't know. President of the University of Alabama. Oh, a university president. From The very same people who had been up in arms about the very idea that... I, I actually, I want to be clear, actually... Uh, uh, as I'm about to say this, we've talked about how the, like, the, reg- the regulation as written, for instance... The idea was not was to like either not be really explicit about like the cost benefit stuff because that is kind of vile or um, or not or to at least try to sort of undermine the degree to which people could point to this and say this is an inordinate cost. And so when people like university presidents, et cetera, people like you know, like, you know, representatives of universities got up in arms about the uh, the regulations being shaped for 504. One of the things that they that like the people drafting the regulation preemptively basically did was say, like, look, we're they, like, it seems like there was an internal conversation that was like, we're going to get a lot of pushback or it might, it might be like it seem might seem too costly or something from a lot of people if we tell them basically that all spaces have to be uh made accessible so and this i think is a is frankly a very shitty um compromise like self self own compromise that they did in shaping these regulations in the first place they said basically you don't have to make everything accessible you just if you're a university for example there have to be like Ba- ba- I think they use the phrase like reasonable accommodations, mm-hmm. essentially, which is like, oh boy. Reasonability, like, that's a huge framework. Yeah. They, they essentially, um, they essentially in, in, inscribe like, you know, you have to make sure that you have sort of enough accessible spaces to have like some amount of accommodation, but like not everything has to be accessible. Not all spaces have to be accessible. And so, yeah, of course this, uh, that's, yeah, it's interesting then that the person who comes in, as the Hugh secretary, as the health, education and welfare secretary is a university person because they were so right. 
adamant about this ironically well, actually you know, this is how the university people to... find out about section 504 and oppose it in the first place is uh, because matthews comes in I and see. matthews is a major snag f dave matthews so yeah i mean it was not it was not until this point in 1975 when you have the sort of regime change in here that people outside of the federal government start to sort of get wind of section 504 and so it's at that point that um you start to see some notification of the parties that are going to have to be making these alterations, right, which is the colleges and universities who begin to quickly organize in opposition to Section 504. And um, because of that, you have this sort of Office of Civil Rights staff um, who's already sort of started making inroads uh, with disability activists. And this is a movement that's been growing in parallel with this drama, right, which starts in the early 70s. So this is by 1975. There's a little bit more infrastructure. And so you have um, some of the people within Office of Civil Rights passing information and organizing with disabled people and sort of starting to get their input on this policy on the Rehabilitation Act in general, not just 504. Because the Rehabilitation Act, remember, it was controversial and it had all these additional programs. So disabled people were already organizing around it. They just didn't know about Section 504 until much later. And this guy, Matthews, Dave Matthews, had a reputation as a, quote, philosophical pragmatist. <laughs> um, to give an example from Scotch, um, quote, Secretary Matthews had a profound concern about the whole process of government. Faced with difficult and complex regulatory <laughs> issues, Matthews might ask whether regulations should be issued at all. Right. My my favorite part uh, of this, of the same account, this the uh, Richard Scotch account that you're talking about, um, my favorite part of this uh, whole drama around David Matthews, the Hugh secretary, is... So first of all, you know, basically, as soon as the secretary changes, the regulations start getting deliberately kind of stonewalled and slow walked by him. Yeah. Um, And one of uh, one of the people under Matthews, a person named Martin Gary, describes the reasoning that Matthews has towards this uh, as such. I just want to read this quote because I find it just amazing. Quote, David Matthews, uh, David Matthews, basic inclination was to just let the whole thing go away. He didn't want to put out regulations. He certainly had a more or less charity mentality towards disabled people, not in the malevolent sense, but in a paternalistic sense. He really just didn't get the idea that these were rights and that you weren't really talking about nice things to do for Easter seal children. Um, yes. <laughs> Easter seal being a, a charity organization. Um, Then when we got to alcoholics and drug addicts, he really flipped out. These were obviously derelicts, and they were so far from Easter Seal children, things had truly run amok. His main concern was that by giving in to junkies and addicts and all those other people and doing too much, we were going to screw up the basic charity system. I think he sincerely believed that the net effect of all this might be to really injure handicapped people and take away from them some of the benefits they had already won over the years, unquote. Yeah, it's not necessarily surprising to me, Matthews, uh, Dave Matthews, uh, I love I love being able to say that Dave <laughs> Matthews, Matthews. Uh, F. David Matthews um, benighted position on rights. He was involved in um, or he was the the named um, party in a lawsuit in which someone had been denied Social Security benefits uh, without uh, hearing. And of course, he thought that was, you know, absolutely essential. 
Um, and this went all like all the way to the Supreme Court and the court ruled that, you know, you could actually be denied Social Security disability benefits without a um, standard what was then called a Goldberg type hearing, which is a prior case uh, decided by the court. So, yeah, he was um, yet yeah, not not exactly what you would call on, on the bleeding edge of disability rights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, rather than overtly oppose the regulation, what does F. Dave Matthews do instead, but instead to stall and demands further study into the draft regulation, Mm -hmm. claiming that Executive Order 11821 required any proposal by a federal agency that involved expenditures over $100 million to include an assessment of its impact on inflation. So he sends a memo. Now this is familiar. Now we're in now we're in yeah, a reality is- I understand. <laughs> so he sends a memo and the draft regulation to receive a inflation impact statement prepared by the end of 1975. So that delays the regulation from the summer of 75 all the way through the rest of the year. And what happens is that, um, you know, this this analysis happens and ironically, the report comes back and it says, well, there are costs, but the benefits greatly outweigh the costs and there is little that it would do in the long run to drive inflation. This seems like a good thing. And by March 1976, it goes back to Matthews's desk. And essentially what starts to happen is that Matthews is obviously not satisfied. So he does a very strange thing. As Phil was saying, normally, you know, you sort of publish the rule and then there's the comment Public period. Public comment and stuff, yeah. And then you sort of resolve those comments and then you like publish the the next draft. He did something else instead and he instead gave it a notice of proposed rulemaking, which basically gave people a kind of like pre-heads up to the comment period. So it was kind of like slowly debuted. Matthew said it needed to happen that way because the rights of disabled people were very like difficult and tricky and it was really controversial. So he was trying to soften the blow by doing a sort of soft release before the major release that would lead to the comment period. I think maybe just to make it more succinct, like he is doing whatever he can possibly do within his power, maybe even things that are not in his power to stop this thing from to stop the train from going down the track. Right. Basically. And I love I love that he failed like he fails all the time. So like he he gets the under the executive order. He gets the inflation impact statement. And then it's like, oh, actually, OK, not that bad. And right. then then he get, like sends it to a private um, exactly. organization and says, like, I need another analysis. And then the private organization comes back and they're like, oh, yeah, um, by the way, uh, actually, like the benefit, this is in the in the uh, conclusion. The benefits forthcoming, psychic as well as pecuniary, <laughs> provide a substantial offset to the costs that will be incurred. The costs involved will not be as great as widely thought, and the compelling situation of some of the handicapped persons involved tips the balance in favor of proceeding with immediate implementation of the regulation. So he just keeps like lobbing out right, like that, these like, like these last ditch like hail mary passes. <laughs> They just go like, nope, denied. Right. Like that language is from the private consulting firm 
public inter- the public interest institute that he hired to get this uh torpedoed as this last last ditch effort and he couldn't even do that he couldn't even do that i mean, I he, mean he did successfully slow roll it for his he, entire tenure he, he but. sat on it for the whole you know ford administration um and up until the last literally the last day that he was in the job yeah um the the sort of problem is is that the guy that replaced him in 1977, Joseph Califano, um, who was President Carter's Hugh secretary, Carter um, had promised to do sec- to enact Section 504 on the campaign trail. He made a speech actually just about that um, at one point in 1976. So disability activists kind of had this promise on the ledger from Carter that when Carter got into office, Carter would stop the bullshit at Hugh and his Hugh director would make Section 504 finally happen. But it turns out that his Hugh director, Califano, gets into office. He takes over the job, and he wasn't convinced. Uh, Califano felt that the regulation reflected the demands of disabled people, but that it did not reflect a political and financial reality that existed in the United States. So essentially, you know, the sort of uh, liberal version of F. Dave Matthews comes into the job right behind him and essentially has the exact same perspective, but from a a liberal standpoint. Yeah, I'd like to I think I have some interesting uh, context for who Joseph Califano was uh, as an individual. He's actually someone who came up in, I, b- I believe he came up to some degree in our previous conversations about uh, the history of Medicare yeah. and things like that. Um, and while I could point to uh, stories from that period, what I would say is, I, I think the one thing really uh, that you need to know about Califano in this period is that much like the statement, like, oh, we need to look at the impact on inflation. Um, Joseph Califano was also one of these people who was during his tenure at Hugh uh, at Health Education and Welfare. He was um, like a lot of the initiatives that he took part in were all about trying to do cost control. Mm-hmm. He more or less failed uh, in uh, in a lot of those uh, initiatives and when and after he did so after all the events that we're about to talk about right after after this then i just i think contextually it's important to note basically the next thing that joseph califano did mm-hmm. after leaving hugh is he went to work for chrysler <laughs> to basically oversee uh their shift to um managed care insurance plans Oh, as the one of the first corporate big corporations to do that, um, because, as he said, basically, there there are uh, things you can see in, for instance, like contemporaneous coverage in The New York Times, where they're saying that, like, literally, he is looking at this as his mission. He couldn't do it. He couldn't control health care costs in the Carter administration. So he's going to do it for Chrysler in the private and, sector. Um, I have a quote oh, from yes. this. Uh, this is from a source that we looked at for the Medicare episode. This is from Jill Quidagno's um, One Nation Uninsured, Why the U.S. Has No National Health Insurance. It uh, is talking about uh, Cal- Joseph Califano starting up the process of initiating this sort of like um, managed care and cost control. And part of it is basically basically what they do is working sort of against uh, insurance and hospital companies that Chrysler is paying. They, they try to basically root out worker disability fraud mm. quote unquote you know uh, uh and it says here they, they have this audit made um i'm going to quote from from this quidagno piece quote according to califano the audit revealed a 
uh, quote, appalling degree of unnecessary care, inefficient practices, and outright fraud. Some podiatrists, seeing people on uh, the Chrysler insurance plan, were working on feet one toe at a visit and prolonging time off for employees on disability. Califano recalled the case of one employee certified as disabled because of foot surgery who was apprehended after a lengthy foot chase while attempting to steal parts from a Chrysler plant. Oh, my God. Unquote. Awesome. So, well, but I, can I also good say good on that worker? But, <laughs> but, but also, also that's, yeah. that's the kind of guy that Califano is. But also, like, let's I want to just just broaden out for a second, which is that like, so Califano is also operating in a political environment in which even he is like too generous, uh, for like his political principles. So like he famously gets dismissed by Carter in 79 because essentially the, the things he's promoting within the administration for Carter's taste, uh, are too costly spending, doing too much social spending. And Carter has, and again, just consider this for a second. Carter's one of his key campaign pledges in 1980. And maybe the first evidence that we see of this uh, for a Democrat uh, is he is. Um, and I just feel like we're all living in in like the fever dream of this. Uh, one of his 1980 campaign pledges is ending deficit spending. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just like amazing. So anyway. Uh, like that's, that's the sort of broader context is like, there's all of this, you know, all of this pledging to like, you know, uh, political pledging to, 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 to reduce, uh, the cost of government, which then just sets things up beautifully, uh, for Reagan by 1980. And, 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 and again, and there's the history of cost benefit analysis in the regulatory state. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's, that's the prehistory. Yeah, I mean, all these sort of contingent logics right right now in this moment uh, that Section 504 is really sort of being um, debated within Hugh uh, and within the Office of Civil Rights. These are these are like moments that the themes that we talk about all the time are like so present in the dominant sort of cultural ideology. Right. The political reality when you say like, oh, disability policy is like not realistic. It's too expensive. Like if you don't contextualize that by saying that, yeah, and Califano believed that we needed to bring the national deficit to zero, which, you know, is a dangerous thing to do to the economy. Right. And believed in these kinds of ideas of like, you know, the federal government being a, a household and being a, and like not being able to sort of deficit spend or whatever, which you know, like at the time um, was becoming like quite, quite dominant. Right. And this is just that is the worldview in which disability policy is unrealistic. And that is the worldview that doesn't reflect a sort of America that can afford disability policy. It's not that that worldview is actually what America is like or what society should be like or is reality. It's just the reality that Joseph Califano was working towards personally as his own political project as an agent of the U.S. government. And importantly, unfortunately, is the worldview under which of so much disability, both civil rights and welfare policy Mm -hmm. uh, that, that survives to the contemporary moment is uh, was made and is treated today. Absolutely. And throughout 1976, you have disability organizers really sort of coalescing, coming together, centralizing around this issue and the ACCD is like really trying to push for um, in the beginning when they start working on it, they're really trying to push regulators to make Section 504 more expansive. But by 1977, after a year of dealing with F. Dave Matthews, uh, stalling and getting in the way however he could with a bunch of just absolutely arbitrary 
cost benefit bullshit, right? Um, activists are now focused on getting them, getting this reg implemented as is, right? Just getting it, just getting it actually out there, getting the Hugh director to sign it finally, fucking finally, right? Because Matthews, after all of his pushing and all of his trying, and disability activists bugging the shit out of him. He's like, fine, fine, I'll sign it. And then never does, right? You know, basically um, getting in the way and being a, a barrier to this until the last day in the job. And then Califano, um, again, is refusing to sign it. So at this point, like all of the organizing is now oriented around the demand is getting the director of Hugh to sign this fucking rehabilitation act and get it out there so it can start to be implemented because again like and without watering down the regs further right yeah. exactly without any more watering down and so what you have in early january 1977 is um obviously the sort of transition this last ditch effort by matthews and the disability movement starts to become really fed up and the protests escalate. And Califano actually walks into a sort of landscape in this job with a disability movement that is way more organized than the previous two Hugh directors have had to deal with at this point. They're pretty ready for him. By March, they've issued a demand and they said, by April 4th, you need to sign the Rehabilitation Act. You need to implement it. Section 504, unchanged, needs to um, move forward. And if you do not do this by April 4th, expect us in all of the Hugh offices across the United States on the morning of April 5th. And Califano, as you can tell from the quote that uh, already read, you know, he's a pretty um, paternalistic guy when it comes to how he thinks about disabled people. It's a, he um, didn't even notify his staff that this protest might happen. So when a lot of these disabled people actually start showing up on the morning of April 5th, not only do many of the staffers in these regional offices have no idea about the drama of 504, they have no idea that protesters are going to start to show up because no one's been alerted because Califano didn't really believe that they would like that they were for real. Also, uh, Califano is pissed by this. There's a there's a statement from his um, deputy um, uh, uh person uh by the name labasi saying of this essentially it sounds um it sounds like basically uh joseph califano's response to this occupation was mostly like uh kind of a the knee-jerk response that we're used to i think from uh today's contemporary democratic party which is the like oh any contestation against like of uh you know people who want to push us left on something uh is bad for optics and um, how dare Labasi they yeah. says quote they they state this is talking about the washington um sit in the one the one in uh, at the hue uh headquarters in washington one of the many that happened across the country quote they stayed in the hue building the hubert humphrey building overnight and joe joseph califano was really upset about that because he did not want to sort of say this was a reawakening of the 60s his attitude was we're not going through this crap anymore it's bad politics it's bad for the country it's bad for the causes to think that sit-in demonstrations were the way the government was going to make basic public policy it's just and if you read any of his commentary or if you read his like biography his autobiography and he talks about these protests he was like more concerned that his dog would bite one of the protesters and there'd be a headline California's dog yeah. bites handicapped person that to him was like a bigger issue 
than what you know what would eventually actually like happen and they would actually occupy the office in san francisco for a month as we were saying aided by heavily armed black panthers who were bringing food in and out and so it's i think it's just really telling to sort of when you actually look at so why did this legendary early disability civil rights action even take place right um there's this incredible story about waste, fraud, abuse, and like government spending that lays the stage for this disability action. And yet the movement's goals at the time are uh, actually quite compatible with the goals of the regulators, which is to employ disabled people, get them off welfare and supporting themselves living independently as part of the independent living movement. Again, I was saying there's a lot of libertarian ideology about free market and freedom and autonomy all sort of being um, things that only occur uh, together, right? That you're among unfree. Among the protesters, you mean. Right. So this is an ideology among the protesters and among the early disability rights movement that you're only free if you're off of, you know, government care and supporting yourself and working. And this is you know, obviously in reaction to basically full exclusion and elimination from the job market um, prior to this. Well, but at and the state, same time, it makes sense as a reaction to state paternalism, but right. it's also a limited, vi- I think, a limited vision of not only what the role of the state is or could be, but also, I think, a frankly uh, exclusionary vision of what constitutes disability. Right. And, and ultimately, and, the, and these are critiques that like the disability movement has had to sort of sort out post ADA, because remember, as I was saying, 504, um, was just for buildings or facilities or organizations that received federal funding. And so when people were, the, and these are the, obviously a lot of the same people involved in the 504 fight are involved in the early ADA stuff. And you have some of the same, um, people who worked on fleshing out 504 called back in to work on the ADA because they have that expertise that other policymakers don't, right? And so you have the sort of frameworks and the issues on the regulatory side reproduced in the ACA and supported by the activists that were advocating for it because they are a shared goal still at that point. And so a lot of people, what I think a lot of people don't understand from our contemporary perspective is, you know, just how influential this sort of fiscal ideology was in disability policy and in there's the sort of construction of disability identity in the United States in general. Yeah. So this, you know, so ultimately this brings us to the morning of April 5th, 1977 to the section 504 sit-in itself, which as I said, lasts 30 days. It ends, right. So, um, you know, this is just part one of the story. Uh, Part two will be coming out on Monday in the patron feed. And we will get into, you know, after all of this sort of policy machination, right, leading up to the moment of occupying the Hue regional offices, this is sort of the groundwork that you need to understand what issues were actually at play in the sit-in. And this is the stuff that like when that sit-in is discussed in terms of disability history, the the stuff that we just talked about in the last hour is never mentioned. What was at stake, actually? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that this um, sort of episode in policymaking is is illustrative of so many things. Like one, just the idea that there, like on on the one hand, like this is sort of what policymaking was like before mandated cost benefit analysis. And I think what's interesting is like you can see the same sort of like political. Um, uh, 
motivations, the pushing back against the expansion of rights, they're still there. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and and they're trying as, as the Matthews sort of very <laughs> sort of like slapsticky kind of Matthews um, digging in his heels reveals like they're trying anything and they're they're looking to cause benefit analysis to, you know, or something like it. Um, to try to, to, to stop this from going forward. So it's not as if like before cost benefit analysis, everyone was like, yeah, let's, let's expand rights. But at the same time, I think what's interesting to me is it does seem as if once the stakes are revealed, once, once this thing goes from being like buried, um, in the text of a piece of legislation to something that's a little bit clearer, um, the stakes seem more obvious. Politics seem more obvious. Like it, it makes sense to me as I guess we'll get into on Monday, like why this resulted in a demonstration. And I, I think what's kind of interesting is the way that like contemporary regulatory politics have a way of like killing off a lot of that political yeah. energy. And like once, once you're in like the realm of like, Oh, we're just weighing things like some experts are going to like make some decisions and you're outside of like, this is in like, you know, universities have to, at the, at the time, like articulate, yeah, no, we don't want to do this. Like, this is like, mm-hmm. we don't want to, we don't, we don't want to do this. They, they can't go to these sort of gen, the more genteel, like scientific e arguments uh, that uh, I, I think that it allows for maybe, maybe a more robust kind of politics. And I, Absolutely. I, I frankly long for that. I, right. I yearn for that. Yeah. I also think that, um, this part of the story in particular is really interesting to look at for all of those reasons, but as the arc of what changes over this policy discussion that is so protracted, because I mean, if you look not only at some of the, the major shifts that happened that we discussed in terms of cost benefit analysis, uh, in this particular instance with 504 over that period, over these three presidential administrations, um, you know, not not only within the context of 504, but also like this is that this is around the time that the discussions begin happening that uh, end up in the formation of the Congressional Budget Office. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which is not to say that, you know, this itself is, you know, a motivating factor, but this is like literally this is a, a time of I think uh, I, I think there's like significant change that happens during this time, mm-hmm. basically, that you that you do see the formation of, you know, again, over, over this uh, protracted period, because it was dragged out for so long, this whole incident like occurs over a really dramatic uh, moment of political inflection, basically. So these are such important themes to keep in mind. When I think of this story, um, one, obviously it's one of the reasons why I started getting really interested in the Congressional Budget Office and why the CBO was even created. Because when you read a story like this and it's happening at the same time, you're like, oh, yeah, definitely could see why people would get the idea that it's a good idea to have um, within Congress this body that's sort of made to catch stuff like Section 504, right. made to see those things before they sort of get slipped past someone's nose in order to sort of replicate the same position that activists were able to leverage to essentially force this to be in- implemented. And the thing that I always think about as a kind of counterfactual is what would have happened if in 1972 the disability activists were tipped off to 504 earlier? What would have happened if for those debates about costs that were happening during the Nixon administration before F. David Matthews comes in, 
What if disability activists were already involved in having to advocate against these cost issues? Would that have changed the rhetoric at all? Because it's not to say, and as we'll get into in the sort of second half of this, it's not to say that the people who were participating in these, this movement were not radical. Right. It's just that they have a different radical ideology than we all do. They're radical democratic liberals. They're sort of radical and informed by different, very different ideas. And some of them are these kind of libertarian free market, you know, independence through sort of like self-ownership and and sort of seizing your, your production value and asserting that you have labor value, right? Which is an argument that friend of the show, Karen Tani, wrote like a great piece sort of against that logic as part of the cost benefit analysis symposium for law and political economy project, actually. Shout out to Karen. But, you know, these are the kinds of ideas that like, you know, what would have happened, right, if things had played out a little differently and maybe this whole discussion around the value, the literal monetary value of accessibility as a social phenomenon was a sort of debated issue in those terms earlier, we might have seen a very different version of the ADA. We might have seen a very different disability rights movement emerge from that period of time. So it's we may even have a very different we may have even ultimately ended up with a very different built environment today. Exactly. And these are the kinds of things where if we think about, oh, accessibility, oh, it's always going to be so expensive. It's going to be so impossible. It's an impossible political project. Well, you know, shut the fuck up and don't talk to me <laughs> until you understand what made it impossible first, motherfucker. I'm sorry. And become a patron so you can hear a part two yes. on Monday. Patreon.com <laughs> slash death panel pod. Part two will be coming. We'll be talking about the month long occupation, how it would not be possible without the Black Panther Party and the support that they gave to the occupiers in San Francisco and what happened to that story and why it didn't become a part of the dominant narrative of the disability rights movement and sort of was whitewashed away. So that'll be a good one. Patreon.com slash death panel pod. You'll get access to all of our bonus episodes If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. We'll catch you Monday in the patron feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
there can be no mistaking Tell me quick as you can Cause we're so 